want to welcome you all. It's good to have you here this morning. I know we have a little bit of snow out, but it looks like we all slipped and sl- slided and kind of made our way here, which is good. And I uh, am always excited to be with you, no matter what the weather. Uh, this is a highlight of the week for our family. Uh, you are the people we want to be with, and Jesus is the one we want to sing to, and his word is what we want to hear. So to us, uh, this is definitely the highlight of each and every week, and I am eager to jump into God's Word with you this morning and share a little bit with you of what I've had the privilege of really just soaking my heart and my mind in this week. Um, this, this December, we've been considering what does the birth of Jesus tell us about God? And we've looked at, over the last couple of weeks, how it displays the grace of God, how the coming of Jesus, the birth of Christ, um, reveals to us the holiness of God. But there is so much more than that. Oh, so much more. And today we get to turn the jewel of the good news that is Christ and him coming to rescue us. And we get to to see how the light reflects off the various angles of this jewel. And I want to consider the love of God that is displayed in the birth of Christ. Please open your Bibles this morning to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation. So start in the back and flip backwards a couple pages and you'll be there in the book of 1st John. And we'll read our text this morning, verses 7 through 12. 1st John 4, starting in verse 7. John writes this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God, or rather anyone who does not love, does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word this morning. And as we consider the truth that we find. God, give us a clearer vision of you. Pray that you would remove the fog of distraction, the fogginess of our own thoughts and assumptions about you that may not be biblical, and I pray that you would illuminate truth, and that you would impress our hearts with the reality of who you are and how great is your love for us. Lord, grant us understanding, grant us a vision of your glory this morning so that we might worship you. And love you in return. Amen. The theme of 1 John 4, 7 through 12, is pretty clear. The word for love, the Greek word agape, or a form of it, is found 15 times in this short text. We see that love is the condition of the redeemed. He refers to these people as beloved, those who are loved. Love is the nature of God, says the God who is love. Love is the description of what God has done for us in sending his son. And love is the mark of those who have union with God. 
God's spiritual DNA, so to speak, of love is passed on to his true children. And this love overflows to others. So 15 times John mentions love in this short text. And right in the center of it, in verse 8, we find one of the most profound and perhaps well-known and most often quoted statements in the whole New Testament. Where John, the beloved disciple, says that God is love. What does that mean? What does that mean? It's important that we get it right. Because many people say that this means many different things. But what does John mean when he says God is love? What did God mean for us to understand when he inspired this man to write these words that God is love? Well, a couple quick clarifications. First of all, God is love does not mean that love is God. God is love does not mean that that love is God. Despite the idolatry of our culture, um, love is not God. So this is not a situation, if you're a a math person, I can imagine Stephen with a a whiteboard and a dry erase. This is not a math equation where you have God on one side, love on the other side, and an equal sign in between. Because in math, you can flip those to either side. Am I correct on that? Math is not my strength, so I'm going to appeal to the the ex-math teacher here in the room. But you can't just take both of these parts of the equation and flip-flop them back and forth. The Greek text makes it very clear that God is the subject of this sentence. I won't drag you into the Greek syntax. You can ask me later if you're into that sort of nerdy stuff like I am, like Michael is. But you you can't take uh, God and flip it to be the object. God is the subject. Love is what we call a predicate nominative. So this means you can't switch them. God is love, yes, That does not mean that love is God. To put it simply, love does not define God. God defines love. There's a difference. We need to make that clear. Second clarification is that God is love does not mean that love is all that God is or that he is only love. We know this from other places in Scripture. Um, This same author writes in his gospel, John 4, 24, God is spirit. Also true. In Hebrews chapter 12, it affirms that God is a consuming fire. Not the fire of burning love, but the fire of burning judgment, if you read the context there. And even in this very book, in 1 John chapter 1 verse 5, John writes that God is light. So yes, God is love, but we must understand that God is also these other things. And it needs to be clear that God's not just made up of different parts. This doesn't mean that God is one part holy, one part grace, one part justice, one part love, and if you add it all together, you get God. No, God is always all of these things completely. He is always completely gracious. He is always completely just. And God is also always completely loving. And each of these different attributes, they exist eternally and perfectly without conflict. This means that we cannot prioritize one attribute of God over and against the others. This means they all fit together. So his love is also holy. His love is holy. It's a holy love. His justice is loving. It's a loving justice. His mercy is sovereign. And his wisdom is righteous. All of his attributes work in concert together without conflict and without any being prioritized over and against the other. So when we say that God is love, or rather when John writes, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that God is love, what he means is that all of his attributes work in harmony with his love. 
It means that love is so essential to God's nature, that love is such a constant expression of his character, that we can say God is the ultimate embodiment and source of love. He loves always with a perfect love. To say that God is love means there is nothing of love that is not found in God. There is no lack. There is no deficiency. There is no imperfection to his love. This perfect love has been shared between the Father, Son, and Spirit since eternity past. It never didn't exist. And now get this. This love has been extended to us. That's what John talks about in this passage. This love is not just some abstract idea. It has been made known in the coming of Christ. Look in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest. It was shown. It was revealed. It was demonstrated. It was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. In the text this morning, I want us to consider four important insights into the love of God. And in doing so, my prayer for you is that you would have a deeper grasp of the nature of God's love, that you would understand it, that you would see it for what it really is, so that you can rightly treasure it, so that you can rightly rejoice in it, and so that you can reflect it to the world. The first insight into the love of God that I want to point out in this text is this. Number one, God's love is not mere emotion, but decisive action. It's not just an emotion. It is decisive action. There's two verbs in this text, and they're the same. And it is that God has sent his son. We see it in verse 9 and in verse 10. Verse 9, God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And in verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This verb, sent, this action that God has performed, takes the love of God from the realm of the emotions, the realm of the affections, and fixes it firmly in the realm of action. God sent his son. And this is what manifests his love. His love has not simply been explained. It's not simply been talked about. It has been shown to us, proven to us in real time, in flesh and in blood, in the decisive action of sending Jesus, the eternal Son of God, to the earth. John has pointed out earlier in this book that such action is the essence of love. In 1 John 3, 16, he says, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us, love, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The point John's making here is that love that does nothing means nothing. Love that remains in the realm of the feelings, love that is never demonstrated to those who are loved, is that really love? John tells us that God's love has been proven, demonstrated, shown, manifested in the sending of his son for us. So think about that. If you are God's child here today, God not only feels love for you as his child, he not only says that he loves you, his child, though he does, he has also sent his son because he loves you, 
his child. And this love has been expressed in that decisive action. God's love is not mere emotion. It is a decisive action. But secondly, God's love is not wishful thinking. It is effective action, effective action. You see, God's love is is different than our love in many ways. And one of those ways is this. Our love means that we generally desire the good of the other person. So I love my children, meaning I desire them to experience everything that is good. And I don't want them to experience that which is harmful or bad. I love them. I want them to be blessed. I want them to thrive. I I want them to, to have joy. I desire their wholeness, their welfare. I really do. I want that for them because I love them. But here's the thing. I may or may not be able to actually bring that about for my children. My power as a man is limited. I cannot control the outcome of their lives. But God's love is different than our love in this sense. God's love for us means not only that he desires blessing for us, not just that he he desires us to be whole and to experience eternal joy, but God possesses the power to actually make those desires a reality. He is able to make his will come to pass, to bring about that which he desires. This is the power of his love. It's different than ours. You see, the verb here, sent, if I can draw your attention back to the text, God sent his son two different times, it says that. This verb is not just in the simple past tense. It is in the perfect tense, meaning that it was an action in the past that has a lasting and permanent significance. It's something that was done previously that has ongoing results and implications. It's the difference, if we were to put it in the English language, the difference between Jack threw the ball. That would be a simple act in the past. The difference between Jack threw the ball and Jack won the national election. Right? That's something that happened in the past, but has continued ongoing results and implications. When God sent his son, he sent his son, in such a way that it it created shockwaves that rippled throughout eternity. It literally changed the history of the world. The love of God demonstrated in the sending of Jesus accomplished God's sovereign will to bring salvation to those whom he loved. And what was it that Jesus came to accomplish? John tells us here in the text, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is what God desired for those that he loved, and this is what Jesus came to effectively accomplish. You see, apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. And we are destined for physical death because of our sin. But Jesus comes to change our condition, to bring us from death into life. And this is the expression of his love for us. In John 10, verse 10, Jesus declares, I came that they might might have life and have it abundantly. This is what Jesus came to do. In love, God has made a way for us to be born again, to receive newness of life, a life that is eternal, that includes both spiritual life now as well as resurrection life in the future. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That is God's loving purpose for his children. Jesus came to give us this gift, to give us life. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is his loving purpose for us, a purpose which he secures effectively as he comes to earth. But there's a second purpose related to the first that John points out in the very next verse. Look in verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus came to bring us life, He came to make propitiation for our sins. You see, our condition was death, and our destination was judgment. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And a holy God will judge every sin, period. Our sin had separated us from God. Because of our rebellion against him, we were deserving of his holy wrath. But Jesus came to rescue us. In Matthew 1.21, those well-known words of the angel to Joseph said, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The very name Jesus, Yeshua, means the Lord saves. That is what Jesus came to do. He came to save us from our sins. To be saved from our sins means at one level that we're saved from the power of sin. Jesus comes to set captives free. We read about this glorious truth in Romans 6. But it also means that we are saved from the penalty of sin, meaning that we are actually saved by God from God. If you've never thought about that before, you need to think about it right now. It might break your brain a little bit to think about this, but Jesus comes as God in the flesh to save us from God. You see, we need to be saved from God because his wrath had been stored up for us and we deserve his judgment, his condemnation. And who can rescue you from the hand of God? Can you? Can you escape the wrath of God? Can anyone else? Kids, as much as your parents love you, they can't rescue you from the wrath of God. The only one who has the power to rescue you from the judgment that is coming upon your sin is God. And God has offered this salvation in the person of his son. Apart from Christ, we cannot escape the wrath to come. We are destined for the eternal punishment from hell unless Jesus deals with our sins. And that's exactly what he did when he made propitiation for us. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Sins. This word propitiation is a crucial word to understand. It's a word that is pregnant with theological significance. And what it means is very simply this. Propitiation means a satisfying sacrifice. It means that Christ in his work on the cross offered atonement for our sins. He paid the debt that we owe. He bore the punishment that we deserve. 
And in doing so, God's righteous wrath was satisfied. If I could illustrate it this way, especially maybe for the kids in the room, imagine that there is a huge cannon that's loaded with divine judgment, and it's aimed right at us. And the fuse on the, on the cannon is lit, and it's burning down. But Jesus, in making propitiation, he stepped in between us and the cannon, and it fired. And Jesus took on the full brunt of that divine judgment that came launched right towards us. And now there's no more left. God is satisfied and justice has been served. The cannon is no longer loaded. That bullet has already been fired. Now we can receive God's grace and forgiveness. That's what propitiation means. It means there's no more wrath, no more judgment left for us because God is satisfied because Jesus made propitiation for our sins. Now, I don't know if I can climb inside any of your minds this morning, but some of you might be thinking, I thought you were going to talk to us about God's love, but you're talking about wrath and hell and judgment and, and propitiation. How does that fit with God's love? Well, yes, God is love, but we need to understand that the highest and truest and purest love is not incompatible with anger and wrath and judgment, and even hate. We see this is true even in our own lives. If you love peace, you hate war. If you love life, you will be angry at those who wrongly take life. If you love the truth, you will be the enemy of error. If you love your children, you will be willing to even do violence to those who would violate them. God's wrath and anger and judgment towards sin is not incompatible with love. It means that he loves what is good. He loves what is righteous. He loves what is holy. He loves his glory as he should. And we have done violence to his holiness. We have blasphemed his glory. We have done what is evil and wicked and therefore deserve his righteous wrath. Yes, God is love, but he hates wickedness and sin. He hates what is evil, and that means we're in trouble. We're in trouble because sin is in our nature. It infects our every thought, our every desire, every motive, every action. You and I are guilty of cosmic treason, and we are therefore deserving of and destined for wrath. And here is the love of God expressed not only in judgment on sin, but also in mercy, that God has made a way for us to escape his wrath while still satisfying his righteous demands. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation encapsulates both his wrath against sin and his love for sinners because he didn't have to make propitiation for our sins, but he did because of his love. And this is God's purpose. It's the display of his holiness and righteousness in judging sin at the cross and the display of his love and mercy and grace by saving sinners like you and me. And friends, this has been accomplished. Jesus made propitiation for sins. And we will worship him forever because this love was demonstrated. It was shown in that he 
took effective action to accomplish exactly what he came to do. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, we see the elders and the angels singing a song, saying, Worthy are you, singing to Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is why Jesus came. What he planned, he accomplished. What he promised, he fulfilled. What he desired for us in love, he secured for us by sending his son. Jesus didn't just try to save us from death. He saved us from death. He didn't just try to rescue us from darkness. He rescued us. This is the power of his love. It is effective in that it accomplishes exactly what it intends. Let me ask you, do you question if God loves you? Let me ask you why. Why do you question the love of God? How are you measuring that love? Is it because of the trials that you face in your life? Did it causes you to wrestle with and question. The Bible says God is love, but it doesn't seem like it to me. Is it perhaps because God has not given you something that you desperately want, something you feel perhaps you even need? Or maybe you've lost something you thought you couldn't live without. May I suggest that if you are measuring God's love with that measuring stick, you're using the wrong measurement and you're asking the wrong questions. Ask this question. Has God given you eternal life and removed the guilt of your sin? Ask that question. And if the answer is yes, then mark these words, you are loved by God. The love of God has been manifested in that he sent his son so that we might have life. He sent his son to make propitiation for our sins. A third insight into the love of God, number three. God's love is not just a general sentiment, but personal commitment. It's not just general sentiment, but personal commitment. There are texts in Scripture that speak of God's general love for the world, the world that he made and the people who live in it. Texts like John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his Son. And we affirm that, yes, such love has in view the mass of humanity and especially the multitude who make up the body of Christ, his bride, the church. But there is also a deeper level in which this love is seen to be particular. It is intended for individuals. Notice the personal language in verses 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that... Who might live? We. So that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved who? Us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There is personal language that shows the love of God is not just a general sentiment for the world. It is, at a deeper level, a particular and personal, even covenantal love for us as individuals. The decisive action of Christ's coming, the specific things he aimed to accomplish in bringing us life and making propitiation, God had specific people in mind in coming, in sending his son Jesus to do this. 
We see this indicated in Jesus' teaching in John chapter 10. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. But in John 10 verse 11, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For the sheep. Not for the cows. Not for the goats even who might be mixed in with the sheep. Jesus says, The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. This personal relationship that God the Son has with God the Father since eternity past, this intimately personal relationship, Jesus says, my relationship with my sheep is personal like that. And intimate like that. I know them and they know me. He continues, I lay down my life for the sheep. The one that he knows personally and intimately. The ones who know him. He says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Referring to those outside the nation Israel. He says, I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. The love that Jesus has that is demonstrated towards us is personal and particular. It is for you if you're his child. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. Some people think that Jesus is sort of like the bus driver at the airport. You know, you get off the plane, you get your luggage, you walk out the door, and you wait for one of those big blue buses to come by. And he parks on the curb. He says, if anybody needs a ride, climb on board. I'm happy to give you one. But Jesus is more like the valet who is in the airport, who has a big sign, and it has someone's name on it. He came there to get a specific person because he wants to give a ride. He's been been tasked with giving a ride to a particular individual. That is like the love of Christ, the love of God that has been shown to us. It is the particular and personal love that has its origin in the eternal plan of God. You see, in the sovereign, electing love of God, he has chosen us for salvation. This is what Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5 say. It says, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. This is not the generic, abstract love for the nameless, faceless mass of humanity. This is the personal particular, sovereign love for individuals. Too many people think about God's sovereign choice of sinners for salvation as being a cold doctrine, as revealing a God who is callous and random, perhaps even cruel. But Ephesians tells us the opposite. Ephesians tells us that this predestination of sinners to salvation is an expression of love, a love that is not just general but personal. The Apostle Paul understood this, and he even talked this way when he talked about his own salvation. In Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friend, if you are a believer here this morning, you should be able to say that along with Paul. That Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. There is a general sense in which God loves the world and desires what is good for those who are made in his image. But there is a particular and personal, 
even covenantal sense in which he loves those who are his own in a unique and saving way. Friend, if you're a believer today, know that God loves you. He chose you and sent his son for you. Jesus died for you. A fourth insight into the love of God this morning, finally, is that God's love is not stingy, but sacrificial. God's love is not stingy, but sacrificial. God's purpose for us, his aim in saving us, as we've already seen, was to grant us life and to make propitiation for sin. But how did the coming of Jesus accomplish that? How did God sending his son into the world bring about that result? Well, it required the death of Jesus on the cross. It is through his sacrificial death on the cross that Jesus brings these purposes to fruition. Jesus was born to die. If you have a little manger scene at your home on the mantle or on the table, and you see that small plastic or wood or ceramic baby in the manger, know this, that Jesus took on flesh. He took on our nature, became one of us, so that he could represent us, so that those hands could be nailed to a wooden cross, so that those nerve endings could experience the lash of the whip, so that his soul, his heart, his mind could experience the anguish of being judged and condemned by a holy God. Jesus was sent here so that he could suffer. It is in his death that we receive life, It's in the shedding of his blood that propitiation is made for sin. And this is the ultimate expression of love. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. There is no greater expression or demonstration of love than to literally die for someone else. And Jesus didn't just die for his friends. He died for us while we were his enemies. The love of God for you, the personal and purposeful love is not simply a sharing of leftovers. Like, oh, I've got some extra love, you can have some. It's not just offering a simple favor like, oh yeah, no sweat, I can do this for you. I was already driving that direction anyway. No, this love is costly. It is costly, infinitely more than we could possibly imagine. We see the costliness of this love in the radical humility of Christ. Listen to Philippians 2. It says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The love of God for us cost Jesus almost everything, the setting aside of his glory and the suffering of the cross. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. It's its own sermon, but we'll just read through it briefly. In Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet, speaking of a future event as if it has already happened, tells us of the extreme, uh, the suffering, the depth of his suffering on our behalf. In verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah 53, Isaiah tells us that the coming Messiah would suffer the humiliation of human rejection. He writes, who has believed what he has heard from us? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The suffering of Jesus included the humiliation of human rejection, but it also included the humiliation of bearing sin and bearing its just punishment. Look in verses 4 through 6. Although Jesus had every right to punish sin, look what he did instead. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus suffered the humiliation of bearing our sin and its just consequences. Verses 7 through 9 tell us, in addition to all this, Jesus suffered the humiliation of human injustice. Injustice, in verses 7 through 9, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Rejection, suffering, injustice. The kind of agony you and I cannot even fathom. The kind of agony that caused Jesus in the garden the night before his death. To fall on his face and in trembling, sweating profusely. To cry out to his father, say, if there's any other way we can rescue these people and give them life and make propitiation... If there's any other way we can save these people from their sins, please let it be done another way. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I don't know if we can even understand the depth of that agony and his suffering. Emotional, spiritual, physical. Friends, this is what Jesus endured for you and for me. What God desired for us Life and forgiveness, he has secured for us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It cost, there was a great sacrifice for this love to be demonstrated for us. In this, is, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. A couple responses for us this morning. What do we do with this? 
First of all, I want to exhort you today to believe that you are loved. Believe this truth, that the love of God has been manifested, that he loves his own. He loves his children. He loves those for whom he died. He loves those he has chosen. He loves those that he has saved. When we don't feel loved, we ought to repent of our unbelief. It is a wicked unbelief to think that our immediate emotions or circumstances somehow hold more truth than the historical reality of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Such doubt dishonors Christ. Such doubt, such doubt discounts his work, and it denies his word. His love has been manifested, shown, proven. How can we look squarely at the cross and question Actually question whether God loves us. May it never be. My friends, I call you today to believe this truth and to receive his love. We receive this love and experience it by faith. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we believe in him and we trust in his work. His love touches our soul. It makes us alive. It cleanses us from sin. If you desire to experience the love of God, Trust in his son, Jesus Christ. Secondly, I want to call you to respond in worship and obedience. I love the hymn that includes the line. We sing it here sometimes. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. I hope you don't just sing that because it's what's on the screen. I hope you mean those words as we sing them. Redeeming love is my theme. We joke around sometimes about the gospel here at our church being the one note on the trumpet that gets played in this pulpit. It should always be that way, and it will be until we die. To know that we are loved by God in Christ is the fuel for worship. It motivates us to praise, to rejoice, to give thanks, and it's also the motive for our obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, if you see that I love you and you respond to me in love, which is how we should, he says, you'll keep my commandments. As we respond to the love of God, it should be a response of worship and obedience. So is your worship cold? I'm not asking if you have a good voice. I'm asking if your heart is filled with gratitude and praise and awe at what God has done for you. If it's not, if your worship is cold, then immerse your heart and your mind in the gospel story, the gospel story that reveals the love of God for us. Let me ask, is your obedience weak? Do you say, I know God doesn't want me to do this, but I just keep doing it? Or I know God really wants me to do this, but it's just too hard. If your obedience is weak, saturate your soul in the love of God so that your love for him will be stirred and strengthened. God's love for us should instill in us a heart of worship and obedience. And then lastly, I want to encourage you today that we are called to extend this love to the world. That's really the context of 1 John chapter 4. We read verses 7 through 12 at the beginning. I know we focused on 9 and 10, but if you read the whole section, John is pastorally exhorting his readers to love each other. He says this is the natural response to receiving the love of God, is that you love each other. If you don't, it shows maybe you've never received that love. And this love is the proof that we truly are born again. We're called to love others. We're called to love others. 
See, here's the reality. Jesus, the one who manifested the love of God in the world, is no longer in the world. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. You know who is in the world? You and me. And we, as the body of Christ, now have this privilege that we get to manifest the love of God in the world. Jesus came and did it decisively and effectively. He redeemed us. He poured out his love on us. And now we get to share this love with the world. We are called to love our brothers and sisters, to love our neighbors, even to love our enemies. And the world is to see it. They see it. John points this out. He says in verse 12, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. What he's saying is people out in the world can't see God, but they can see you, and they will see you. What will they see when they look at you? Will they see the love of God? See, the love of God must fill our hearts and transform our lives so that his love overflows to others. As the body of Christ, as the church of the redeemed, Love is what validates our faith, and it's what shows the world what God is like. Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Is God your father? Because if so, then you should be increasingly a chip off the old block. There should be some sort of family resemblance as those who know him have been loved by him. This love has been instilled in us and is to be demonstrated to the world. We not only extend this love to the world in our own acts of love, showing them, but we also get the joyful privilege of telling the world the good news, telling them of God's love. We warn people of the wrath to come, but in doing so, we also proclaim to them the unparalleled love of God in Christ. As the Nicene Creed put it centuries ago, for us... And for our salvation, he came down. Why? Why would he do that? Because God is love. And he loves us. The coming of Jesus manifests the perfect love of the God who is love. The coming of Jesus demonstrates his character. It brings his purposes to fruition. And it forms the model for how we ought to love each other. And my hope for us as a church is that we would treasure this love, that we would rejoice in it and reflect it to the world. Heavenly Father, as we consider your word this morning and the incredible love that you have displayed for us in sending your son, God, we are humbled to think how little we have meditated on your love. I know I am ashamed at how little I often esteem your love. How infrequent are my thoughts of your love for me. Lord, help us this Christmas season to meditate on the love that has been manifested in the sending of Jesus. God, we thank you. And we ask your forgiveness for our cold worship and our weak obedience. We thank you, Jesus, that you made propitiation for our sins. We need not fear judgment anymore. But we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We can seek your mercy. And we can experience again and again, each day, your love for us. Lord, stir our hearts to love you 
and to share your love with the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.